0: The Lord said to Abram, Go now from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So Abram went, as the Lord told him to. He was seventy-five years old when he departed Haran, and he took with him Sarai his wife, Lot his nephew, and the entirety of his possessions and bondservants. They set out for the land of Canaan, which at that time was inhabited by the Canaanites. Abram passed through up to Shechem at which was the great tree of Moray. There the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast and blog dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. This episode is the season 3 finale, titled, As for Me and Mine. Today's discussion is all about choice. Like, for example, the choice that Joshua gave the people of Israel when they arrived at Shechem the very same place at which abram found himself several hundred years earlier shortly after he had arrived in the promised land of canaan god told abram to go and abram went and in the land of canaan when he had traveled as far as shechem the lord appeared to abram and said i will give this land you see to your descendants at that place god reaffirmed his promise The promise that if Abram would trust in the Lord, leave his home, and travel to this hitherto unvisited land, then God would give it to Abram's descendants. At Shechem God said, You have upheld your end of the arrangement, now I will uphold mine. To your descendants I give this land. In that land, Abram lived out his days, and then returned to the dust of the ground. His son Isaac, too, lived in the land, eventually going the way of all the earth. As the years passed into decades and burgeoned on centuries, Isaac's son Israel and his sons, Reuben, Judah, Joseph, and the others, lived in the land. But they were forced from it by famine into Egypt, where many generations passed away, until finally Moses was lifted up to lead the family of Abraham back to that promised land. Back to Canaan. And on the way, when Moses, like his forebears before him, fell asleep for the last time, Joshua was appointed to cross the river and bring the people into their promised land. Having been away for too long, the Israelites had people to drive off, cities to conquer, and enemies to battle. But toward the end of Joshua's life, when the promised land was as reclaimed as it would be, That moribund servant of the Lord gathered the nation together for one last farewell address. He congregated them at Shechem, the very place where Abram stood so many centuries prior, when he had first entered the land, when God had promised it to his descendants. So Joshua gathered those descendants at that place, back where it all began, and he told them, Long ago our fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Terah's father Nahor, they served other gods. But the Lord took Abram from beyond the river and led him into the land of Canaan, where his descendants became many. God gave Abraham Isaac, and to Isaac God gave Jacob and Esau. Now Esau inherited the land of Seir, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, a foreign land. So God sent Moses and Aaron and plagued the Egyptians, and then afterward plucked our fathers from their bondage. God brought them out of Egypt. And when Pharaoh's chariots trapped them at the edge of the great Red Sea, what happened? When our fathers cried out, the Lord protected them with a shield of darkness and parted the waters for them. Yes, we saw what God did for our fathers. When they were wandering for a long time, and the Amorites rose up for war, God gave them into our hands. They fought with our fathers, but God destroyed them. The same happened when Balak, son of Tzippor, the king of Moab, arose to fight against us. He hired Bilam, son of Beor, to curse you, but our God would not let him. Instead, he blessed our fathers, and we were delivered by God's hand. When, finally, we had crossed the Jordan, and the people of Jericho sought to destroy us, what then? The same with the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. God gave them all into our hands. It was not our swords or bows that conquered these people, but it was God who went before us, sending plague and hornet and disaster. God gave to us a rich land on which we did not labor. There are cities that we did not have to build. There are fruit orchards and olive orchards and vineyards that we did not have to plant. All of this is now ours. So now I urge you, hold the Lord in awe. Serve him in integrity and trust. Remove the gods whom your father served across the river Euphrates and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. But, if serving the Lord is evil in your eyes, then choose yourselves today whom you wish to serve whether the gods whom our fathers served across the river, or perhaps the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now settled. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and mine, we will serve the Lord. That was the decision that Joshua made and declared before his countrymen. Whether or not to serve the Lord was the choice he set before them. For the people of Israel were at a turning point in their history. God had led them into the promised land of their forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had conquered that land and given it to them, with all the fullness thereof. The cities, the houses, the fields and crops, the orchards, the olive presses, the stone walls that surrounded the cities and the bountiful goods that filled them. God gave it all to them. So, as one chapter of their history was ending and another beginning, Joshua put the question to them Do you take the things of this land and forget the God who provided them? Or do you serve the Lord? Before presenting that choice, however, Joshua gave them a history. He recounted the many things that God had done for them, beginning early on when their ancestors lived in Mesopotamia on the far side of the Euphrates, worshipping the foreign gods of those places until the Lord called Abraham into a new land. And how when Abraham finally arrived, pausing at Shechem, the Lord appeared. And like Mufasa telling Simba, God told Abraham to look around and know that this great land, all that the light touches, would be his descendants. Those who Joshua had gathered together, there at that very same place, Shechem, were the beneficiaries of that promise. To them God had given the land. Joshua told them that, moreover, they did not win the land themselves, for it was God who won it for them. When a nation rose up against the Israelites, God, not the soldiers of Israel, defeated the enemy. And did that happen just once? No, rather again and again. Remember the Amorites? Remember the Moabites? The ones who hired Bil-Am to curse them from the high places? Remember when the walls of Jericho fell? Remember the Perizzites and the Canaanites and all the others? Where now are the gods of their towering heights? Where indeed are the gods of the great ziggurats across the Euphrates? The Lord only had been revealed. The God of Abraham only has guarded the Israelites and blessed their undeserving souls so generously. So Joshua asked them, Will you serve the Lord our God? Having been witness time and again to all that the Lord has done, will you follow? Will you live as a member of Abraham's family, God's chosen people? Will you serve the Lord? And if not, if you can't stomach the idea, or you're opposed to it, or if it is in any way wrong in your eyes, then make that decision here, now, today. If you choose instead to serve the Sumerian gods across the river, or the gods of the Egyptians who oppressed you, or the gods of the Amorites whose cities you have conquered, in which you now reside, then go on and serve them. But make that choice in this place. Here, at Shechem, plant your flag and decide. Will you follow the God of Israel, or not? You make that choice for yourselves. And as for me and mine, we choose to serve the Lord. One noteworthy aspect of Joshua's hortatory is the evidence he presented. Joshua did not call upon the people to exercise blind faith. Rather, he adduced instance after instance from their history, proof of God's power and favor toward them. Like in Psalm 37, a record is presented. I have been a young man and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor with children begging for bread. Another point of interest of Joshua's speech is that he did not offer any type of promise. He established what God had already done forsooth, but he did not guarantee any lofty gifts nor unprovable prizes such as a paradisal afterlife. Joshua said that God had already been good to them. Indeed, there is an implication that God, being good, will continue to act favorably toward them, but the choice is to be made based Not on what God might still do, but on what God has already done. The things thus far should be sufficient to make one choose the Lord. And as there are no promised rewards, there are no threatened punishments, neither of hell, nor damnation, nor ill fortune, nor any such thing. The only comeuppance for denying God is perhaps the guilt that one's conscience will be sure to rouse. So, compunction may be but certainly no threats of state-sponsored penalty. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Choose to serve the Lord because you have seen all that God has done. This is altogether different from telling people to follow God because of the future reward they will receive, and it is also altogether different from telling people to follow God to avoid some awful future punishment. Note here it is not about incentives, positive or negative. It is an invitation to look at who God is, as evidenced by past action. Based on that alone, choose whether or not to serve the Lord. Joshua set a weighty choice before the people of Israel. But perhaps you can already see that we ourselves are faced with the same one. As we mature in life and settle into the men and women each of us becomes, virtue demands that we declare one way or the other, follow God or don't. Wallowing in uncertainty is not only shameful, but it is miserable, too. Half in the door, half out. Ambivalent, hesitant, vacillating, temporizing, and avoiding the decision. Eventually, we need to muster the courage to stand up, one way or the other, and choose. Joshua told the people, we've come all this way and seen God's work. Now, either say yes, or say no, but don't just stand there chapfallen and diffident. It's reminiscent of when Simon Sinek asks a married man if he loves his wife. The expected response is yes, but the unexpected follow-up question is, how do you know? That is, when was the moment that you switched from not loving her to loving her? The point being that there's probably not a clear demarcation. That falling in love happens over time, like the night sky giving way to daylight, so gradually that one scarcely notices it. Nevertheless, there is a certain window of time. Simon says that he isn't sure what it is, but surely it's somewhere between seven days and seven years. If after one week of dating your mate tells you that he's in love, you look at him skeptically, because you know that one week is not long enough to build that bond. On the other hand, if after having dated her for seven years, he tells you that he isn't sure whether or not he loves her, then you know there's a problem, because you don't know when he should have fallen in love, but you know it doesn't take seven years. Again, it's like a person going to the gym. We can ask, how long will it take to get in shape? That's a difficult question to answer, and there are several factors. I know it will take more than a day, because no one can go to the gym once put in a really good workout, and then wake up looking like Arnold. But at the same time, I know that if, after a full year, that person doesn't see a difference, any difference whatsoever, then something is wrong. The same idea applies to God. Of course, there are outliers who have instantaneous conversions, but by and large, it takes a moment. How long do I need to interact with the Lord before feeling comfortable making that choice that Joshua asked of the Israelites? I don't really know. It probably takes more than a week to learn enough about God, spend enough time to get a good sense, but it doesn't take that long either. If you've spent the last decade in church on Sundays, Bible studies on Wednesday, and whatever else, and you still can't make up your mind about God, then it's time to step back and reassess your approach. Now, you may or may not be at a pivotal juncture, like the Israelites at Shechem. But there comes a time to decide, to take a stance and choose, between God or whatever else you have as a substitute. For what reasons might one hesitate? First and foremost, one compelling reason is fear. Perhaps fear of uncertainty. That is a valid concern and a real reason to do more. But my friends, that is also life. For all change is accompanied by fear and uncertainty. Would you expect changing your life to serve God to elicit a different feeling than when you change your life to accommodate a new career, or new location, or a new companion? Big decisions deserve a moment to pause and consider, but not to temporize indefinitely. Don't let that trepidation leave you verklempt or paralyzed. Another legitimate reason might be evidence. Percipient Joshua thought to provide the Israelites with a lengthy testimony of God's deeds, as those deeds pertain to them directly. But we don't necessarily have that for ourselves. I've never waged war against the Hittites. Neither have I ever lived in a city whose former inhabitants I've just conquered in battle. I myself have never walked through parted waters on dry ground, nor eaten holy manna, and neither did my parents, nor grandparents, nor any other of my ancestors. Yet, on personal levels, I think that God does provide abundant evidence. If you feel differently, then my question is, what are you looking for? In Season 1, Episode 11, The God of Abraham, we looked at the proof needed to convince ourselves that God is worth following, and it seemed like a never-enough argument. Will anything God does satisfy your uncertainty? Honestly. Another thing to ask is if you are giving God a fair chance. Dragging your unwilling, inattentive self to church to roll your eyes every other Sunday is not giving God a fair chance. Maybe, instead, try what Jesus suggested. Serve the helpless. Be generous with your money even when it's tight. Do for others without expecting anything in return. Pray earnestly about the things that matter to you. Be faithful. And try to involve yourself with a group of people who don't just say they're Christians, but who bear the sign of stigmata and live and breathe Christ in word and deed. You can begin as we did this season. By going through the sacred book, pausing to ask silly-sounding yet profound questions I begin, if I were a fig tree. Ask yourself, how it happened that Bill Am, son of the Destroyer, was eventually thought of as Bill the Soothsayer? Think about the people who have died for their faith, earned the palm branch of martyrdom, and what it is that their blood cries out. Think about yourself. What is your worth? what is your price? Reflect on how God's way averts catastrophe, like the one that never happened because of a contentious altar on the far side of the Jordan, like how the lives of thousands of millions of people have been affected by the decisions made at the Jerusalem Council. Take a moment to ask about the enigmatic Melchizedek, the priest-king who was perhaps much more As you think more and more about the Lord and about Jesus, think about the mark of a Christ follower, not physical marks like crucifixion wounds, but the more important ones, and come to view those people not as dry bricks, but as living stones added to the living temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus. Spend some time with these topics. Chew them over like a cow chews cud. Ponder their meanings. And then, perhaps, decide if you feel that God is for you. Remember, it is up to you. The beauty of Joshua's address is that, like Christianity, it is an honest choice. There's no intimidation. Choose God or choose death. Choose my way or some terrible punishment. Joshua told the people to choose God or choose something else. Just own up and decide. No more wishy-washiness, do you wish to serve the Lord or not? We should not feel pressured to choose as Joshua did. We make our own decision, based on what is right in our own eyes, based on the demands of our own consciences, based on what our own individual understandings of what God has done in the past, most importantly in our own pasts, but also tempered by the testimonies of those we find reliable. Given your understanding of who God is, how do you choose? For the people of Israel, Joshua was a popular guy. But in the broader picture, he was but the leader of a quasi-nomadic group of former slaves. Jesus was admired by his followers. But zooming out, he was but the leader of a motley group of Jews living in the boonies of the Roman Empire. Christianity in the modern era is somewhat respected in many parts of the world, at least the Western world, but these days only nominally and subjected to growing skepticism and resentment. And in the broader world, it is subjected to more violent and widespread persecution than any other affiliation save Judaism. And this is to say that the decision can be difficult, because on the one hand, your immediate circle might pressure you to join the family of believers, but on the other hand, people beyond your small ambit might abuse you if you make that choice and convert. Therefore, you must choose for yourself. Like when Jesus told Peter that neither John nor any of the other disciples factored into the decision. What did Peter choose? If your best friend the Christian weren't there, would you still make much of God in your own life? Even if your co-workers revile you for the decision, how do you make it? The decision can be difficult, especially given the influences around you. But after reflecting on who God is, it should become plain to you. Now, Joshua obviously did not give an unbiased speech. He made his preference known. He said, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I, too, am not an unbiased expositor, but I do urge you to choose what is right in your eyes, irrelevant of my opinions. However, if you were curious, as for me and mine, we will serve the Lord. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today and throughout Season 3. My name is Ben Laboot, and it has been an immense pleasure to journey with you through all that we have, and I can't wait to reconvene soon. Stay in touch by following at Stories of Symmetry on Facebook and Instagram, enjoying monthly blogs and more on storiesofsymmetry.com, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app so that you'll be notified about bonus episodes and season four announcements. Be well, and until we meet again, go with God, go in peace.